Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the 413th show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Scott Skull, professor of anthropology at the State University of New York, Cortland. And we're going to be talking about experimental archaeology as participant observation, a perspective from medieval food. The history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. And our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of the show, referred to as Farouk Dinarin. And today we'll be talking about experimental archaeology as participant observation. A Perspective from Medieval Food with Dr. Scott Stull, Professor of Anthropology at State University of New York, Cortland. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thank you. Listen, can you start of uh, start us off by giving our listeners some background into what experimental archaeology is? Oh, absolutely. Um, when, when we do an archaeological dig, we get the things that get lost or thrown away, and um, sometimes they're broken. Sometimes we have no idea what they are. Um, and so experimental archaeology is trying to replicate either the objects or the conditions that led to some thing from the past and how it was used. So, for example, um, we find projectile points all the time. You, know, you find them in a farmer's field, whatever. The archaeologist will say, well, how did they make this? And then they'll try to make one. And, or they'll say, how did they use this? They'll make one, and they'll see how it attaches onto an arrow shaft. And then they'll shoot it at a target and see what happens. Um, and you can do experimental archaeology on virtually anything. Um, there's an international organization that does experimental archaeology called Exarch, and they have easily 100 articles about different things that people have done, making metal and making food and making ceramics and doing textiles. You name it, you find something in the ground, and we try to figure out what it does. You can recreate it with experimental archaeology and, and then see, see how it works and see what, what we think people in the past could have done or we're pretty certain they didn't do it that way because whatever we tried didn't work. Okay. That group that you mentioned, uh, are they tied in with a, a university or is it a private organization? It's a, it's a, in a nonprofit, um, independent academic organization. It's not tied to a direct, um, you know, specific university. It's based in Leiden in the Netherlands, which has a, a, a really awesome archaeology program. Um, I got to visit there, and oh my God, I would be happy to work there. They've got, you know, a dozen labs and incredible uh, comparative collections and, you know, just a beautiful facility. Yeah, apparently you like but, it. Okay, we get <laughs> That sounds good. Um, but the, the organization, um, Exarch, is separate from that. They just get this whole population of archaeologists that they can draw on as part of their their um, you know, your their base, if you will, to to be able to do more and more really great stuff. 
Um, so has experimental archaeology, like like many things, kind of run hot and cold in terms of popularity? Because I'm thinking back to my childhood. Um, one of the things that got me particularly interested in archaeology was watching vid, uh, film of Louis Leakey uh, and his wife mm -hmm. making stone points and I mean spear points and, and scrapers and choppers and things like that. Sure. Um, and and now it seems like. Everywhere you turn on the on the um, cable shows, there are um, experimental archaeology type shows. They're not necessarily being done by archaeologists, but I'm just thinking mm -hmm. of Forged in Fire, which is people trying to recreate medieval uh, weapon technology, and um, there are some uh, some internet folks who are doing you know different kinds of things, trying to make. Um, clay pots and, and all of those kinds of things. So is, is this a, a relatively hot topic at the moment? Um, and, and do you think it's going to stay a hot topic? Um, well, it, I, I have to just start in with, it's funny you mentioned Forged in the Fire, because a friend of mine actually was on that, um, <laughs> and he won his episode. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, cool. <laughs> it really is a hot topic. Uh, yes, yes. So that's done. yes. Really hot. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> there's the connections but, everywhere. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's funny, these things. Um, the uh, One of the first books on experimental archaeology came out in... 1973 by John Cole, and it's called Archaeology by Experiment. There are a bunch of people who have done a little bit here and there, but rather than saying it's running hot and cold, I think it's just, it's it's kind of like a, a snowball rolling down a hill, that it's just getting bigger as it, as it moves through time, because we're recognizing really how useful it is. Um, and so it's definitely very popular now um i don't know if it's going to plateau at some point i expect it will but there's so much we can do with it and when you tie it in with something like an open-air museum you can get this incredible amount of of educational material and and um research potential that i don't think it's going to really fade very much but I think there's just going to be a change in emphasis. Okay. Uh, being that I'm the modern historian here, I'm going to talk about some technology that was created after 1492. Uh, we've had other guests on that have said that, you know, in dealing with archaeology, you now have satellites that play into the picture and lasers that can read into areas that, you know, that we could never really get to yep. before. So I'm asking, sure. has this kind of new modern technology, yes, Jay, your favorite kind, has it has it impacted this area that is given into more of a driving force? Because the people we've had on the show that have talked about archaeology, in a lot of ways, it's made things easier. Oh, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I like to do is to cook old foods in pots that I've made. And um, there's a, a book that came out a, a few years ago um, called the medieval master chef that was an archaeological study and there's a residue analysis on some pots that says this is what people were cooking in these pots and i went oh well i'll go look and see at the recipes and and see what what recipes match up with the things that are in that pot i would never have been able to do that without that residue analysis study and 
Um, I was just looking at uh, some recent research that used um, uh, X-ray kind of technologies. And um, I have a colleague that I work with that does uh, 3D laser scanning. And I gave him some of my pots to scan before I used them so that we could see if there was any change between what they were like when I started and what they're like after, you know, two years of use. And so all of these things are contributing, but they're all contributing to the, the whole field of archaeology. And experimental archaeology is absolutely benefiting from that, too. Okay. Um, so since we're going to be talking about food for the rest of the show, um, talk to us a little bit about the process. Um, as you are trying to do this, um, are you... Is it difficult, for example, to obtain all of the ingredients that would be in an ancient recipe? Is it difficult to recreate the uh, materials, the utensils and things that were, um, that were being used at that time? Um, how much uh, are you having to speculate or substitute because this particular grain has gone extinct or things like that? And, and I guess I'm also sort of wondering, we're going to be talking a little bit about medieval food. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of Native American cultures, for example, where there are, mm -hmm. there are absolutely uh, particular food staples that have gone extinct over the last 500 years or so. Um, or at least gone wild again. Maybe extinct isn't necessarily the right word. So talk a little bit about the process of getting things together in order to do your experiment. Well, some things are really easy um, because they're very much like what we can, you know, we, we can get a chicken at the grocery store, for example. I mean, it's, it's not going to be exactly the same. You know, the, growth, the conditions are a little different. Um, the eggs you get from a farm are you know, from a small-scale farm where the chickens are running around eating all the bugs is going to give you a different kind of yolk, for example, than you'll get from you know, a big mass-produced um, uh, chicken factory. But they're going to be more or less the same. Um, some things you can get on the Internet. Um, you know, long pepper, which is a relative of the regular round peppers, but it, it makes um, a little elongated form. It, you can look that up on the internet and buy it. And it's called for in some medieval recipes. There are other things that are incredibly hard to find. Some things we don't even know what they are. And so we have to speculate. Um, one of the things that, that we're looking at for, for medieval cooking is wine. Um, you know, they're not using Chardonnay because Chardonnay is a, you know, it's a historic variety, but it's not what, what they were growing back then. There was a recent high-technology study that determined there's a, a kind of grape called Sauvignon, um, like Sauvignon, but, but spelled just a little differently, that's from, like, the Jura area in, in Europe, and it is, was, was grown 800 years ago. So that's a variety of grape that they had in the middle ages and we could still buy it you know you can go to the internet you can go to your wine store if they have a good selection the native american things are actually really interesting there was a, a a woman who's now i believe at the missouri botanical garden 
who did some research into a domesticated grain called erect knotweed yep. um, because it, it's a tall plant. Um, and she determined that this was a domesticated variety. And she has been, she went out, found some, some sort of residual patches um, and started growing it again and cultivating it. And she talked to me about the possibility of my making some pots for her to cook the erect knotweed in while she was here at, um, at, at where I live. I live in Ithaca, New York, and she was at Cornell. She went to Missouri just as I was finishing making the pots. So we never had the opportunity to, to put the, the grains in the pot that I made and see what it was like. But we're, we're finding some of those things. Um, also at Cornell, there's a, a, a Iroquois white corn project, and they're growing the Haudenosaunee white corn that is um, like what they would have used you know, 500 years ago. It's really different from modern flint corn. I've got a, a stone grinding stone, and I've tried you know a bunch of different kinds of, of corn in it, and the modern corn is designed to go through a modern mill. It's not designed to go on a, a stone grinding stone. And so it, it's got very different characteristics, but I can get it because of this, this connection between archaeologists studying the past and then saying, hey, there's some of this still around. Let's bring it back. And that's what's happening. All right. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KLA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of the show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Scott Stull, Professor of Anthropology at State University of New York, Cortland. And we're talking about experimental archaeology as participant observation, a perspective from medieval food. Our history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. Terry, why don't you start us off? Yes, Scott, I'd like to continue with um, the medieval foods. So you find recipes, um, but how did they measure time back then? How do you determine how long to cook something or what kind of measuring techniques did they use? Well, there's um, a lot of the medieval recipes say cook till done. Um, so there is no time listed in it at all. There's, uh, um, and there's a good reason for that. They're cooking with fire, either with charcoal or with um, firewood. And if you move your pot that you're, cooking on um you know two inches you're going to change the temperature that your food is cooking at if you use oak instead of pine 
you're going to change the release of heat from that wood. So giving a, a precise time for most recipes isn't even practical. It's not even something you would consider because the variation could be, you know, several minutes. There are a few places where um, you do need precise times. And uh, there's a, a mid-14th century recipe for, for mead, which is honey wine, that says boil it for an acre there and back. We think of an acre as a, you know, just generic measurement of, of area. But a medieval acre had actually had a shape. Um, the English acre is the one that, that I'm familiar with. But there are a lot of different shapes for German acres, which is where this recipe is from. So I don't know exactly what that acre there and back really means. But I guessed, based on the English acre, that it's about five minutes. Looking at modern brewing techniques, that's about how long it would take to, to do that particular step in the brewing process. So it seemed to work. So their measurement of time for this precise circumstance was based on the amount of time it would take you to walk a specific distance. And that's really unusual. Most medieval recipes don't have that, but that's one of the ways that they measured time. Okay. Ed, you got a question? Uh, yeah. How did, uh, how did you find your way into this particular field? Well, um, that's a really good question. I don't, I, I don't have a really easy answer. Um, I took an introductory archaeology class when I was in college, and I really liked it. I did well in it, um, and I eventually picked up the archaeology major. When I um, graduated, I found a book that I said, oh, I'd love to have one of those cups because I think it'd be fun. It's a, a neat interesting form and i talked to a friend of mine who was a potter and she said yeah i could make you one of those it wouldn't be too hard but i graduated and then i i i left st louis which is where i did my undergraduate work and then i had an opportunity to take a pottery class and i wanted i tried to make one of those cups and i've i've actually been making them for the whole time i've been a, a studio potter now 30 years it's sort of hard to believe um and, but I've always, I've, when I came to grad school, my parents bought a farm just outside of Ithaca. And so I got more into cooking and it wasn't a, it wasn't a really hard step to go from, I'm making pots and I'm making food and I'm interested in the past to put all those three things together. You bet. Okay. Um, Scott, when you, when you're trying to sit there and basically like, put down the premises for for a class and teaching your students is there a certain a certain a prototype of a of a, a pot that you kind of consider to be the beginning point because i'm sure these evolved over time that you know that you have them starting off and then they found better methods or is or how would you go about of like you know trying to teach this uh starting off with a 101 class and then moving up to graduate well <clears throat> When there's, there's two different parts to that question. One is um, if I was teaching ceramics, and I've done that. I've taught 
you know, introductory ceramics. And that's just how do you make anything? And you start with make a cylinder, which is a standard approach for any ceramic um, project. And then, okay, you've got that mastered. Now make a, a bowl. And, you know, then people have problems and eventually master that. And then what I do is I say, find something that you're interested in and make one of those. And I'll help you as best I can. One of the reasons I say that is because people will work harder at things that they, they're interested in more than something they're just assigned. And once you've got a mastery over the, the sort of basic forming techniques, you can, you can make sort of whatever. Um, and giving them that option that gives the students the opportunity to make it their work rather than something that I, that I just assign them. Um, for an archaeological class, I do much the same thing, but it's, it's in a, uh, a more intellectual form. Find a society that they are, you're interested in. Find something that you want to do. If I'm in the experimental archaeology classes that I've, I've done, I don't limit it to just ceramics because, you know, not everybody wants to do that. Pick something. I've had um, people make beer. I've had people mummify chickens. I've had, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. You really don't want the failures from that one. <laughs> um, Explain to your parents uh, how you got an F in the class. I couldn't mummify a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that. Um, so, but that's what they wanted to do. So I helped as best I could. <laughs> <laughs> My colleague who teaches gift and talent understands exactly what you're saying right yeah, now. Yeah, <laughs> I had uh, I had my first year of teaching. I was teaching an Egypt col- an Egypt class, and um, so I did the same thing. I you know kids could make whatever projects they wanted to make. So this kid brought in her project, and uh, she'd made an Egyptian sarcophagus. And when you open the sarcophagus up, there's a mummy inside. And I'm like, oh, wow. and it's a, and it's a really, it's a really realistic looking mummy. And I'm like, what, 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 you know? And she goes, no, no, no. She flipped it over and it had been cut open. And I went, yeah, but this still looks. And she goes, well, I did have to duct tape my brother. <laughs> she apparently, <laughs> she apparently bondaged her brother and then wrapped him and then cut him out of the wrap. <laughs> oh, that's fabulous! That is. <laughs> so it was, it was a wonderful project. But I, I, you know, it's one of those where now you spend the next two weeks wondering whether some parent is going to give you a call. But apparently, she had frightened <laughs> him enough that he didn't say anything. <laughs> wow, oh, um, that's hilarious. So my question, though, is. Um, so, so walk us through um, uh, a recipe that you've done um, and, and sort of how you did it and how it turned out and what you learned from it. Um, and I'm just going to, before I let you start, I am going to kind of answer one question for Terry. After you've cooked for a while, measurements don't matter. 
I don't mat. I don't measure. My mom never measured. You, you, you just kind of have a feel. You know, I know roughly how much paprika mm-hmm. is supposed to. He go knows in, when the tater tots are cooked. Or, you know, <laughs> those kinds of things. And and I guess I, in fair disclosure, I should mention that that I've been doing uh, medieval reenact or actually ancient uh, and medieval reenactment uh, cooking for about thirty five years. So I've made upwards of 900 different recipes and so so I'm really fascinated by but I've never I've never made my own pots that I then cooked in so I'm I, you know I think and you've just is, retired so there yeah, you go I, you know I, I think what you're doing is really cool so pick a favorite recipe something you really you know learn something at and kind of walk us through so there's a, a recipe that that I've made a couple of times um, called chicken comedy or chicken with cumin. Um, and this one is you uh, cut up a chicken and you um, put it with a little wine in water to cook and then take it out and fry it in fat and then um, put in some bread and some spices and then put it all together. At no point does it say take out the bone. But we don't have forks in late 14th century France. We have spoons and we have knives. And if you've ever tried eating a chicken drumstick with a spoon, it's really hard. (laughs) Yes, that would. If you take it off the bone, then it's great and it works really well. There's a, a 15th century recipe called Buknad, um, and that one specifically says take the meat off the bone. And so I think they just left out the take it off the bone from the 14th century recipe, but it's there. And so that's a, one example of a, a process that, I've, um, that I've, I've figured out that little bit from making this recipe. Okay, Scott, we have a minute left, and it's customary to give our guests the last word on the show. Why do you think knowing about experimental archaeology is relevant in today's world? Well, we're, we're living in a world that comes out of medieval Europe. The university system that we're, that, you know, you're sitting in a university, I'm working in a university, that was first formed in in a thousand years ago in medieval Europe. And we go to Burger King, not Burger Pharaoh. (laughs) (laughs) This is part of our life. This is our history. Our each person is created by their history and each society is created by their history. If you want to know about yourself, you have to recognize your own history. And that's what we're looking at. Um, We also see some, some sort of, bad actors in in the modern world saying this is what the middle ages were like and we're going to be you know sort of nasty horrible people and this is a counter to that this is the real middle ages this is not their white supremacist fantasy this is what life was like and there was a lot more going on than than what we see from these these invented views of the middle ages and that's why I really like looking at medieval 
Europe because it's part of our past, and we can help make our modern world better by showing what it was really like. All right. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 413th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Scott Stull, professor of anthropology at the State University of New York, Cortland who talked to us about experimental archaeology as participant observation, a perspective from medieval food. The history buffs for today's show were Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers who go to Wendy's instead of Cleopatra's. Good night. Good night.